and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope step set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the peace behind the, cur- the, cur- the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, everybody okay? All good? Um, If you haven't, open your Bibles to that passage in Hebrews 6. You want to kind of follow along. Um, I'm sure everyone's heard by now, but kind of because of new restrictions starting from next week, um, we'll... I have to go back to online gatherings for two weeks, um, which is gutting, isn't it? Um, especially as we begin Advent next week. Um, but what a time to put those Advent lessons into practice. These Advent's about anticipation. It's about waiting. It's about holding on to hope, even in the midst of the darkness. Um, so it's okay, isn't it? Um, we'll be all right. Um, yeah. Um, let me just ask you this question as we begin. What do you think God wants for you? Give me a second to think about that. What do you think God wants for you? Um, last week we looked at chapter, that kind of first part of chapter 6, um, where we received this serious warning Uh, about the consequences of a sluggishness in our hearing, Um, this warning about having a lack of urgency. Um, We we no longer, he's he's saying to his audience, you you no longer have a, you, you have this loss of hunger, this loss of thirst after the deeper truths of God. Um, you're no longer, um, just hungry for more. You're okay with where you are in your spiritual life. Um, And it's this admonishment of that spiritual immaturity. Um, He said to his audience, you become dull and sluggish in your hearing, and that's resulted in you being spiritual infants. Um, You're stuck in kind of spiritual childhood when you should be further on by now. Um, You should be able to help teach others. You should be contributing to the family, kind of giving rather than always needing to, to be fed. But he says, you're not. You're, you're stuck in kind of spiritual infancy. He's telling them that this maturing in your faith, um, this, this moving from milk to, to solid food, um, it's, it's not just for the sharpest in the room. Um, this maturity, this, this maturing in the, into the deeper things of God, it's not just for like the spiritual cream of the crop. It's for everyone. He's saying, you all need this. And the reason is because that maturing in the faith brings powers of discernment. 
It's going to give you wisdom. It's going to help you distinguish between right and wrong, between good and evil. And he's saying you absolutely need this maturing. You absolutely need this wisdom in order to persevere to the end. And because there are trials coming your way, there is suffering that will be coming into your lives. Um, there's persecution coming. And, and what does that look like for us? Usually it looks like some kind of societal pressure, isn't it? Maybe pressure from our friends or family that I think you've all experienced because of your faith. This is going to tempt you to, to give up on your faith, to kind of distance yourself. And he's saying you need to be equipped for those things. You need to be equipped in order to get through those things. So he says, move on to maturity, brothers and sisters. I wonder if you felt the urgency in that warning last week. He, he gives that stark warning in verses 4 to 8 to increase your urgency. Um, to, because he's like, this is what you're in danger of because of your sluggishness. And he says, there will be some of you who will start well, but will not finish. Some of you who will uh, taste that heavenly gift, who will taste the goodness and the power of God, but in the end will end up rejecting Christ, um, end up kind of packing it all in. And he's saying, don't let that be you simply because you're content with where you are. You need to be moving forward. And there's actually no kind of standing still in the Christian faith. Being idle in your faith means you're drifting. We've talked about that before. It means you're actually moving backwards. He says, you need to be moving forward. You need to be moving on in your maturity. Andrew Murray said, the Christian life is a race. To begin profits nothing unless we run to the end and reach the goal. Faith may accept only long-suffering patience inherits the promise. He says, don't be like that land who drank the rain that fell on it, who received that gospel seed that was sown, but didn't produce anything useful in the end. Or maybe you did for a little while, but it withered away because there was no roots, because it was choked out. Don't be like that. Um, I wonder how you received that word of warning. What were your thoughts through the week because of that warning? What are the conversations that you had with other people because of that? And maybe you'll be honest and you, you're, you're like, man, I haven't thought about it since last Sunday. Let me lovingly encourage you to go back and listen to that one again because you need that word. Um, let me ask you that question again uh, that I said at the beginning, though. What do you think God wants from you in light of that admonishment? Notice I'm not asking what God wants from you, which is normally where we go to first, isn't it? Especially when we hear a warning like that, what does God want from me? He, he, he wants me to pray more. He wants me to read my Bible more. He wants me to go to church more. He definitely wants me to stop A, A B, and C. He wants me to, to, to clean things up, to sit up straight. Some of those things might be true. Probably a lot of those things I listed are things that I would encourage you to lean into. But notice that's not where the author goes after giving his warning. He doesn't just jump into spelling out exactly what God wants you to do, how, how you are to change your behavior. It's not what he does. Instead, he gently and lovingly directs his reader's attention to what God wants for them. 
After giving that spiritual whipping, um, after that warning of warning them of the peril of their spiritual immaturity, he immediately begins to direct our eyes to what is in God's heart. What does God want for us? And notice the answer isn't God wants you to be terrified. The answer isn't that God wants you to constantly be wondering if you are spiritually secure or not. He doesn't want you to constantly wondering if he's, if he's pleased with you or not. This is, that's absolutely not what God wants for his children. The opposite is true. God wants you to have full assurance of hope until the end. That's what's in his heart for you. That's what he desires for you, for you to be confident in your new identity in Christ, for you to be confident in, uh, he wants you to know what Sally Lloyd-Jones says in one of my favorite books, the Jesus Storybook Bible, that God loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. That's what God wants for you. That's what he desires for you, for you to have full assurance of hope, for you to hold fast to that hope to the end. Do you ever struggle with that, though? Do you ever struggle with assurance? Do you ever question God's love for you? Do you ever question his promises? And I think some folks are just, they're just inclined, they're vulnerable to these kind of struggles of assurance. And I've spoken to some of you, and no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how well you can explain the gospel, no matter how, many, uh, how much fruit there is, the evidence of his grace in your life, there's still sometimes just a struggle with assurance. That might be you. And for, for other people, it might be because of certain circumstances and difficult things that happen in your life that cause you to struggle with assurance. It's usually some kind of suffering or hardship and maybe it's a loss of a job, maybe even worse, a loss of a, a loved one. Maybe uh, they struggle with chronic illness. Maybe it's the struggle with depression year after year after year. Usually some form of, I didn't think life was going to be this way for me. And that sheer weariness of those experiences can kind of wear you down and cause you to struggle with assurance. Um, but listen, God knows all of those things. There's nothing in your heart that God doesn't already know. Um, he, he's, he's aware of our frail position, um, which I think is why he spends uh, so much time in his word giving us assurances of his love, giving us reasons why we can be confident and firm of a certain hope. Uh, and really, in, that's what he's doing in verses 13 to 20, Verse 11, he, he says, the writer says, we want, I want you to have a full assurance of hope until the end. Verses 13 to 20, the writer is turning and he's giving us the grounds for that confidence. He, he wants us to know what the foundation of that confidence is. What's the grounding of that hope and why is it sure and steady? Um, so let's look at verse 13. Um, in, thir- in verses 13 to 15, he gives this example of Abraham as someone who, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. So that's why we kind of started in verse 11. Verse 11, I want you to have full assurance of hope until the end. Verse 12, don't be sluggish in that, but be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. God's like, I'm going to put people in your life. 
these examples of people who have faith and patience as they're inheriting the, uh, uh, these promises. And in, in the next section, he's saying Abraham is one of those people, um, someone who had faith and patience as he inherited the promises, as he persevered to the end. Uh, but notice that the point of this text isn't going to be, look how great Abraham was. The point is going to be, look how great God was to Abraham. So he's using Abraham as an example of someone who persevered through faith and patience. But the, the writer's point is for us to see why Abraham was clinging to hope. He wants us to see what the foundation of Abraham's hope was, of his faith. Why did Abraham continue in faith? He, why did he continue to go on trusting God when it seemed that God had forgotten him? Well, if you read Abraham's story, he had reason to believe that God had forgotten him, but he continued in his faith, continued clinging on. Let's read from verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And the writer of Hebrews, you should have picked up by now, is just a master of the Old Testament. He knows the scripture. He knows how to interpret that scripture and apply it to our situation. And that's what he's doing here. So he's, he's taking us back to Genesis 22. So Genesis 22 is that scene where the Lord tests Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And, and Abraham obeys God in that. And he, he takes his son up to that mountain and, but as you know the story, uh, God stops him at the last moment, don't touch him, and he provides for him a, a substitution for that sacrifice in the form of a ram. And, and then he tells Abraham this in, in Genesis twenty-two fifteen, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I surely... I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. So that's the scene that he's recalling here in, in Hebrews 6. He's, he's quoting that. He's bringing us back to there. Um, and what he's doing is he's wanting to remind us of the way that God assured Abraham. And um, he's saying, look at what God did in order to give assurance to Abraham, in order to kind of increase his faith there. He took an oath. He swore an oath to Abraham. We'll get to that in a minute, but you need to, you need to, it's important to notice that this isn't the first time that God has given Abraham these promises. It's not the first time that Abraham has, has heard God say, I will bless you, I will multiply you. Um, he's heard this before. He heard, the first time he heard it was back in Genesis 12. So Genesis 12, we're introduced to this 75-year-old nobody called Abram, um, and God calls Abram out of the land of Ur, and he tells him, go to your country and your kindred and your father's house and to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is the first time he, he tells Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you. I want you to, 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 to follow me and obey me. Um, I don't know what that scene looked like. What did it look like for Abraham to receive that word from the Lord, to receive that, that, that promise? Um, regardless of what it looked like, he, he, he believed him, and he, he, he follows God. He, he must have looked like a madman, but 
he places his faith, he packs up his stuff and his family, and they set off to go to the land of Canaan. Lots of things happen on that journey, but one thing that keeps happening is God keeps repeating that promise to him. He keeps, he keeps kind of up in the ante, and we'll, we'll kind of see that. But they go into Canaan, there's a bad famine there, so they go to Egypt. Um, they eventually come out of Egypt. Uh, Abraham and his nephew Lot kind of separate ways. Lot gets taken into captive. Abraham goes and rescues Lot. Uh, in chapter 14, Abraham is blessed by this, this king priest called Melchizedek. Story starts to kind of come together here. We'll get into Melchizedek in, in chapter 7. But then in chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He repeats this blessing. I'm going to bless you and, and multiply you. I'm going to give you this land. And, and he, he, he makes a covenant with him there. It's a, Quite a weird scene, but it's um, striking. And then in verse, um, in the next uh, section, Abraham and his, well, Abram at this time, and his wife Sarai kind of take matters into their own hands, and they, uh, they try to make this blessing happen because they're not having kids. And so Abraham sleeps with Sarai's servant, Hagar. Um, he has Ishmael. Um, God gives Abraham, in chapter 17, this covenant of circumcision, so he gives him the sign of the covenant. He repeats that blessing again. I will bless you. I will multiply you. But he promises that this is going to come through your wife Sarah. Um, this is the I'm going to have her give birth to a son, and this is going to be this this promise kind of fulfilled. Um, in chapter 21, Sarah gives birth to Abraham's son Isaac. She's 90 years old at this time. Abraham is 100 years old. And imagine the scene then in chapter 22. Abraham has waited 25 years since that first promise of God till his son is born. 25 years. This is a quarter of a century. He's been waiting for this. He's 100 years old by now. His wife is 90. Isaac finally comes along. And then a number of years later, we don't know how exactly old Isaac is, but he's a boy. God says, so now that you've been waiting these decades for this, this son, this heir, this promise, I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham in his faith says, okay, I trust what you've said. I've, that, that promise that you made, I'm going I'm to put my faith in that. I'm going to put my hope in that. And that is one of the things that I, that I think that faith, that great faith is one of the things that the author is pointing out here. Be like Abraham. Be, he's, he's one of those ones that you can imitate his, his faith and patience as he inherited the promise. But I don't think that's his main point here. His main focus is really for us to see the way that God assures Abraham of his promise. And the way he assures him is by taking an oath. That's what he wants you to see here. Abraham, I swear I will multiply you and bless you. I promise I'm going to take an oath. I swear by myself an oath that, that I will fulfill the promises that I've made to you, that you can trust what I say is true. And the author of Hebrews wants us to remember that and to realize that the way God assured Abraham was in the context of that miraculous deliverance was by swearing an oath to him. Which is weird to us, isn't it? It's, it's strange. And the reason it's a bit jarring to us is because the reason we take an oath is simply because we are untrustworthy, isn't it? 
It's the, way, it's the reason you have to take an oath when you go to court. When you're giving evidence, you have to take an oath because when our butts are on the line, we tend to lie. We, t- we tend to want to save ourselves. But, but God doesn't lie. God doesn't have that problem. And verse 18 tells us it's impossible for God to lie. So you know that kid's song, my Abe sings this around the house. Our God is so, what is it, big or great and so mighty. It's nothing our God cannot do. Theologically incorrect. <laughs> there is something God is unable to do, and that's lie. Because what comes from the mouth of God will come to be. His word is trustworthy, it's true, it will come to pass. It's impossible for God to lie. So why is he taking an oath? It's another one of those scenes where you see God stoop low. He, he, he condescends to our level. This condescending, taking an oath when he didn't need to at all, when, his, when what he says is true and, and will happen, but he's kind of humiliating himself here and he's willing to take a seat on the witness stand and take an oath. Why? Simply in order that we be assured of his promise. And the reason the author is writing this here, the reason he's recalling this, is because he wants his audience, which is you this morning, he wants his audience to know that that oath that God took wasn't just to Abraham, it was to you. That's what he says in in verse 17, it's to the heirs of the promise. And I don't have time to get into this, but... Uh, Go read Galatians 3, Luke 22, Acts 1 and 2. If you are a believer this morning, if if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then you too are an heir of God's promise to Abraham. That promise that he gave to Abraham is for you. That, That oath that he swore to Abraham was him swearing it to you. God stooped to take an oath because he was so concerned that you would be able to believe his promise that you would be assured of his love and his purposes, that you would have hope that could not be taken away no matter what comes your way, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in. He's so concerned with that that he's willing to take an oath. Look at verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So in a human level, there's two kind of main reasons why we take an oath in a human court. Firstly, because they require, they require an appeal to one higher in status than the oath giver. And, and it still happens today. If you go to court, right hand up. I mean, place your hand on the Bible. I swear by God um, that the evidence I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Um, you're swearing on something significant, it doesn't make any sense to swear by something in- insignificant. I swear by this microphone stand that I'm telling the truth. This doesn't bear any weight. I don't, I'm not going to believe what you're saying. But who cares about a mic stand? It has to be something greater, something more powerful, something meaningful. I swear by, I was going to say by my mother's grave, but my mother's here. You've heard that before, though. It's something weighty. It's something meaningful. Sorry, Mom. 
It's something more significant to affirm the seriousness of your oath, which is why God swears by himself. There's no one greater. There's, There's no one more weighty. There's no one more powerful. There's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more significant for him to swear by. So he swears by himself. He's saying, as long as I live, me, God, as long as I live, or as, as deep and as weighty as my glory is, I swear what I'm about to say is trustworthy. The second thing about taking an oath is it's given in order to bring about a confirmation. Um, it's, it provides a legal guarantee of the testimony's truthfulness, thus strengthening the case being presented. Um, when one swears in this matter, it leaves no room for legal dispute since an oath may be taken as establishing the truthfulness of a given position. That's why verse 6 says an oath is for final confirmation. And obviously, oaths, they're important to us simply because they hold us to the truth. We're because we are prone to not telling the truth. But as we said, God doesn't have that problem. So why is he taking an oath? It's not because his word is weak. It's not in order to make his word more truthful. It's because our faith is weak. It's in order to help us to, to, to believe and to have greater faith. God knows the struggle. He knows that we struggle with believing his promises. He knows that. You're not hiding that from him. So he says, here's what I'm going to do. In addition to making a promise, I'm going to stoop low and I'm going to swear an oath as well. That's the two unchangeable things in verse 18, his promise and his oath. So you have this double secure word. I've given you my promise, which should be enough, because what I say will come to pass But out of my love and out of my my concern for you, because I know how weak you are, I'm going to go extra, and I'm going to guarantee that promise with an oath. It's two unchangeable things. I love verse 17 and 18. Let me read that again. Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's the answer to that question that I asked you at the beginning. What does God want for you? Chapter 7, verse 17 tells you directly. This is what God wants for you. This is what he desires for you. He desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. That's you this morning, hopefully. He desires to show you more convincingly, what? The unchangeable character of his purpose. How believable, how, how firm that promise is. More convincingly. That word means super abundantly, far beyond the normal amount. Extremely. He desires to show you more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose. And he desires that so deeply He wants that so much for you that he guaranteed it with an oath. So now you have two things that are unchangeable, two things that that it's impossible for God to, to lie. And because of that, we who have fled for refuge... That hopefully that's you this morning. You are fleeing from the former and, and, and going to God for refuge, for safety. 
We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's what God wants for you. That's what's in his heart. That's what he desires for you. To prove to you just how unchangeable his promise is. That promise to bless you. That promise to multiply you. That promise to give you rest. He wants you to know just how trustworthy that word is that he goes that extra mile and he swears an oath by himself. He swears by the greatest, most meaningful, most powerful, most magnificent person there is himself. And the reason he does that is so that you can have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before you. That's an amazing heart, isn't it? How, How often do we think God is that like stern God in the sky, lightning bolt, maybe a whip, shaping up, do better, sit up straight. The author's saying that's not as what is in God's heart for you. That is not his posture to you. He loves you. He cares for you. He is, he concern, he's concerned about your perseverance. He desperately wants you to, to know how how. how trustworthy this word is, that you can cling to it, that you can continue to persevere. He wants you to have strong encouragement to hold fast to the end. Put another way, he's rooting for you. He's on the edge of his seat watching you, not waiting to to smite you, but waiting to to, to be able to, to show you, to be able to prove to you just how trustworthy he is. Desiring to show you more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose so that you can carry on in faith with patience. He keeps doing this as well. When you read, go read Abraham's story this week, um, Genesis 12 to Genesis 25. That's a great reading. Um, what you see God doing repeatedly for Abraham is reminding him he's constantly and lovingly relocating his hope. That's what he's doing here. He's relocating his hope. And that's what he keeps doing all throughout Abraham's story. Genesis 12, he gives him that promise. He relocates his hope from his whatever circumstance he had to his promise. And then he does it again in in Genesis 15. He gives Abraham the covenant, relocates his hope again. And then he, he does it again in Genesis 17. He gives him the covenant sign. And then he does it again in Genesis 22 by giving him the oath. Over and over and over again, he's saying, Abraham, put your hope in me. Put your hope in what I'm promising you and what I say, not in your circumstances. Your circumstances are dire. You are 100 years old waiting for your 90-year-old wife to give birth. If, that is, if your hope is in your circumstances, you will f- crumble but I promise you will have a son. You can believe that. Put your hope in that, in my oath, in my promise, in my covenant. Relocate your hope there. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying to you and me this morning, that you can have assurance of hope. But in order for that, for to, ha- to have that assurance, your hope has to be located in the Lord, in His Word, in his promise, in his covenant, in his oath. That's what you need to ask yourself this morning. What am, where, where have I placed my hope? 
Lincoln Dungan says, crisis comes into the Christian life when people profess to be Christians, but their hope is somewhere other than the Lord. When their real hope is not in the Lord, that's when crisis comes into the Christian life. That's when what you read previously, that, that dangerous warning of falling away, that crisis happens when your hope is not firmly placed in the Lord. He's saying you want to have assurance, which God wants you to have, place your hope in me. Place your hope in my promise, in my hope, in my oath. And look at verses 19 to 20. You see this beautiful way that the author applies this truth. And he tells us that Christian hope stabilizes the soul. Christian hope stabilizes the soul. It keeps you from dangerously drifting. Christian hope keeps you from neglecting that great salvation. Read it with me. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as our forerunner on our behalf, having become forever, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is amazing. He's saying that hope that is a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul, the place that that hope is located is in the inner place behind the curtain. And he's, he's obviously talking about the Holy of Holies here. So that, that place in the temple where the presence of God dwelled, but it was, it was separated with that curtain. So the, the, the holiness of God, the presence of God is separated from his people. Those two can't mix except for the high priest who can enter through that curtain and he can only do it one time a year to atone for the sins of the people. That, that holy of holies, that special, terrifying, holy place, he's saying that is where your hope enters. But again, he's pointing out that this, this holy place, it's no longer unavailable to us. It's no longer, there's no longer a barrier preventing us from entering that holy presence. And the reason that this is now an open room is because Jesus has gone there as our forerunner, having become a high priest forever. This final high priest, this high priest that doesn't, no longer offers sacrifice after sacrifice day after day, once and for all, in himself, opening up this curtain. And he's, he's not talking about the temple. He's not talking about the tabernacle. He's talking about the, the heavenly holy of holies, the, the, the very throne room of God. He's saying, that is where the hope that anchors your soul enters. I love this idea of this upside-down anchor this anchor, when you drop an anchor, it goes down, stabilizes you, anchors you, keeps you from drifting your boat. Um, but when we drop our anchor, it goes up. Um, our hope resides in the presence of God. Our, our hope resides where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. 
Graham Rutherford wrote, Our confidence is grounded not only in the sure promises of God, but also in a person and what that person accomplished in history on our behalf. He says, Our stability and our stickability, our perseverance, comes not from ourselves and our own achievements. It is derived from our confidence in having both the Word of God and a high priest as our forerunner in heaven. This has so many implications we could pull out of it. But do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying that that place that was unavailable to you, that, that, that place that you could not enter because of your sin, the presence of God that you dare not approach, he's reminding us that Jesus, as our forever high priest, has gone before us there. And he has, he has not only gone before us, but he has placed our hope there. And he opens that curtain for us so that we can boldly enter, we can confidently enter that throne room. We can boldly come into the presence of our creator. He's saying that is open to you if you place your hope there. If you place your hope in God's word and his promises. If you place your hope in Jesus as that forerunner. Jesus is the one who blazed that trail to glory. Jesus is that one who opens the curtains through his death on the cross. Placing our faith in him. Relocating your hope there. Onto him. Every day. Diligently. Earnestly. That's what God wants for you. What does Jesus do when he goes? Not not only is he this forerunner that makes a way and he blazes the way to glory, he's also there praying for you, pleading your case. How encouraging is that? That should fill you with hope. Relocating your hope onto him every day, diligently, earnestly, that striving, What does that look like? What does it practically look like for us to be a people who have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul? What does it look like to be a people who have a hope that is so anchored in God's word and his promises in Jesus' finished work on the cross that no matter what storms come our way, we are anchored, we are steadfast, we are sure in our hope. What does that look like? I think answering that question, I think, is the most important question for us to answer, period. For our our perseverance, what does it look like? What does it mean to do that? What does it mean to abide with Jesus daily? What does it mean to fix our gaze on him? What does it mean to consider him more? Does it mean to pay much closer attention lest we drift away? To daily relocate and anchor our hope in Him? This is why we've kind of, we've talked about this three-year kind of vision, three-year goal, is to dig into this, to, to, to start to put this together as a family, to have a vision of what does it look like for you to daily anchor yourself in God's promises and Jesus' work so that you are sure and steady and not drifting. I 
I can tell you one thing, it's a battle. It's not easy. It's striving. It's diligently sacrificing. Um, I think um, I can kind of look back and when I was 17 was when I started want, trying to figure out what does it look like to, to be with Jesus daily. I won't go into all the circumstances, but I can tell you, I don't think maybe some of the older brothers and sisters will be able to tell you as well that I found right now, in all of those kind of 20 years, right now is the hardest time to do that. Because the world is after your attention. We all have these things, these phones that there's companies paying billions and billions of dollars, pounds to to figure out how to capture your attention, how to capture your affections. And so it's so opposite of our culture to diligently be with Jesus daily, to, to anchor ourselves in Him, in His Word, in His presence. There's nothing more opposite in your life than figuring that out. Because much of what God is doing in us you know what? It's slow and it's quiet work. Which is not what our culture teaches us to be after. You know, we want radical progress, don't we? We want results. We want to be satisfied. We want, we want it quickly. And that's just not the way of abiding with Jesus. It's slow and it's quiet work. Psalm 37, 7, be still before the, Lord, before the Lord and wait patiently on him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Be still before the Lord and patiently wait on him. That's Abraham's example, isn't it? By faith and patience. 25 years of patiently waiting for God to fulfill that promise. But listen, perseverance, don't get that confused with perfection. So read Abraham's story. Abraham was not perfect. He didn't, he, he faltered. He, he, he kind of dipped up and down. He tried to take matters in his own hands several times. Went into Egypt, pretended that his wife was his sister, like he just didn't trust maybe what was happening here. It wasn't just like, I'm just constantly, constantly, constantly on, on fire, constantly hoping in the Lord. But there was a patience there. There was a perseverance there. But it, the point again, it's not because, because he had something special in him. It's because God was constantly relocating his hope, constantly taking his eyes off of his circumstances and placing them on him, on what he promised, on what he is saying. That's what it looks like. It's a battle. Love us for the next, I say for the next three years, for the rest of our lives, to continue to figure out a vision for what this looks like in our lives as village, a daily abiding with Jesus, anchoring ourselves in his word and what he's done, in his presence. How amazing is that? 
to have a hope that enters into the presence of God where Jesus is and it's anchored there no matter what comes your way. There is suffering coming your way, church. Place your hope in his promises. Place your hope in Jesus, the one who accomplishes those promises and you will have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. You will be that mountain that is unmovable. Let's stand and pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your heart for us. That out of your love and out of your mercy and your grace, that you go that extra, extra mile in order to help us be assured. You don't only promise, you give us covenants and oaths and ultimately the blood of Jesus. Lord, help us to lift our eyes off of our circumstances and place them on you, Jesus. The one who is the forerunner into glory. The one who anchors our hope there. The one who prays for us there. The one who watches us the one who knows us. Help us to know your grace, Lord, that even when we do fall, like we will, that there is still a sure and steady hope to be grasped. And it's not in our efforts, it's not in ourselves, it's not in our circumstances, it's only in you, Jesus. Lord, help us to remember that. Help us to preach that to one another. Come, Lord Jesus, anchor our souls in you. Praise things in your name.